We have a really special episode today, uh, one that I'm really excited about, and I know that Tammy and Andy are as well. Our guest is Mike Davis. Uh, he's a teacher. He's the author of a lot of books about California, working class politics, global inequalities, pretty much everything. He even wrote a book about car bombs. Um, he's been in the news a lot because the, he wrote a book about, uh, in 2005, The Monster at Our Door, which was about global pandemics. And he has a new book out as well with his friend John Wiener. It's called Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, and it has a lot to teach us right now about how to build social movements, and it's sort of a revisiting of, of the 60s in a way that I found to be refreshing and new, um, just as I, find, I found all of his work to be refreshing and new. Um, you know, he is a personal hero for the three of us, and so we're very, very happy to have him on the show. Thank you so much for giving us your time. We're all big fans of your work, so it's really exciting for us to to be with you. Um, maybe you could start just by saying a little bit about where you are right now. You know, you live in San Diego. Are you sheltering in place with your family? What's that been like? Well, we have a big household in a uh, fairly small house. There are five of us, so I'm living out in the garage. I'm in the living room right now, but I live in the garage with the. Uh, uh, the dog and a couple pints of, of uh, Guinness. So we're in San Diego, and until this uh, yuppie moved in and built this three-story McMansion next to us, you could <laughs> go out on our driveway and, and see Tijuana, eleven miles away. Oh wow! And your wife has connections to Tijuana, right? My wife is uh, uh, Alexandra Matazuma, and she. Uh, uh, comes from Mexico City, but most of her family ended up in Baja California or uh, here in San Diego. And so the closing of the borders <clears throat> cut our extended family in half. Wow. Uh, half of them on the other side, half here. And Tijuana, as you may know, is the epicenter right now, the worst yeah. area in, in uh, Mexico including the refugee uh, camps in, in Tijuana. Um, but closing the border doesn't prevent uh, COVID from jumping back and forth. And mm -hmm. so even though San Diego's had a mild outbreak, they're expecting to see uh, a second wave fairly early here. And uh, it could be much larger than what we've experienced so far. I mean, you can't have two cities with such uh, profound inequality between them right. and uh, difference in medical provision and not see uh, the virus opportunistically travel back and forth. Mm -hmm. Well, that really explains a lot of how intimate the, 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 these issues are for you and your household. Um, you've been doing a lot of interviews recently, both because you have this new book out, but also because of your 2005 book about the avian flu. Um, what have you been wanting to to convey in, in these talks and interviews you've been doing? <laughs> well, let me put it this way. Uh, you may have seen on television in the rerun 
uh, an old movie called Sophie's Choice with Meryl Streep in it. And in the film, Meryl Streep plays a, a mother who arrives at Auschwitz with her two children. And she begs the sadistic Nazi doctor to save her children. She says, I'll die, but save my kids. And he says, well, you have a choice. I can kill both your kids, or you can choose one and survive. And so the plot of the movie revolves around her, her horrible choice. And this is really the situation that millions of people in this country find themselves in right now. People who've had to work all along uh, in warehouses and food distribution uh, and healthcare, people going back to work now. Because the Washington Post pointed out this morning, uh, in addition to the fact that in March alone, uh, 40% of the low-wage workers in this country lost their jobs, but it pointed out that a third of the people who are working or going back to work either have a pre-existing condition, uh, heart trouble, diabetes, respiratory problems, or they have someone in their household who does. Mm -hmm. And of course, imagine you're in an intergenerational family. Um, you're a waitress at Trek Stops of America in Laramie, Laramie Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming hasn't closed down, Republican state, not very, uh, a very sparse population. The boss tells you, well, I don't want you wearing a mask uh, in front of truck drivers. They don't, they don't like it. So uh, when I come back to work, don't wear a mask. But you're a single mother with a 12-year-old and your own mother who suffers from emphysema living with you. That's Sophie's choice. And it's a choice millions of Americans are confronting without any kind of advice, without any kind of uh, assistance on how to make choices between the income and saving the mortgage uh, and between the health and safety of, of, of members of the family. Or have you been surprised by the lack of, of some sort of movement politics around around workers, around this Sophie's Choice that you talk about? Because, you know, just from my perspective, at least, you see all the energy that went into the Bernie campaign and the claims that it was a movement, you know, and that you have images everywhere of, you know, like, like the culinary workers in Las Vegas, for example. And I don't know, I, I think I agree with you in the sense, or at least what I think you're saying, that a lot of that energy is dissipated, you know, that, that you can't find it. And that I, I just don't know where it went. Like, I mean, where do you think it went? Like, are you, are you surprised that it's not there? Well, in, in the first place, good behavior is wrong behavior at this moment. Uh, there's no reason why we can't demonstrate safely uh, respecting social distancing or do as the uh, Ford workers did in 1941 when they were organizing the biggest factory in the world, River Rouge in Detroit. And the Ford security force had beaten people, they got on picket lines, they got tear gas, they got tired of that. So a thousand of them piled into the jalopies mm -hmm. and circled the plant and shut it down. Uh, there's absolutely no contradiction between political activity 
political protests in public space and, and being safe. I mean, look at the democracy movement in Hong Kong. You know, they're all suited up with masks and gloves, but they're not giving up uh, the struggle, particularly as government attempts to uh, arrest so many of them and, and, and implement the crackdown. So we should have been behind the healthcare workers and other workers from the beginning. And we should have anticipated the fact that people are going back to work or being forced to go back uh, back to work unsafely. That's an issue the left should have owned. And we should own the jobs issue too. Well, why do you think if you, let me just finish. Yep, Imagine yep, if yep. you took, took some of uh, the campaign finance chests from the Biden campaign. And you had an advertisement. I don't know if any remember Joe the plumber from long ago, this phony worker that the, uh, the Bush campaign used. But here's Joe the plumber saying, I need to work, man. I got to get back there, goddammit. But I don't want him to have to make this choice about my mother-in-law. I don't want to risk my health. Where is the damn protective gear? Where is the testing? What the hell is going on? And, uh, in in Washington, but just what? Wh why do you think the left didn't organize around that there? Because that's like why 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 haven't there been why haven't there been bigger protests? Why have you know May Day had wildcat strikes? Um, you know you had even you had these moments in Indianapolis and in Georgia where there's some small protests around police shootings. Like wh why why do you think that there's been this sort of petrification or? I don't know. I think petrification is the right word. People just seem scared and, and not going out there and, and, and really figuring out what this moment is. Like, why, why do you think there's been such reticence? Well, because no one is, um, no one's counted the example. And in the case of the, the, the Sanders campaign, I mean, you're right. It is collapsed totally into negotiating with, with, with Biden, with putting up good legislation. Uh, that can never be adopted unless there's protests on the streets demanding it. I was hoping that the Sanders campaign would take the fight to the platform, uh, to the convention platform committee, trying to get the Warren delegates and others behind it, you know, absolutely need uh, universal free health care. Now, the 27 million people have lost their estimated have lost their uh, uh, insurance for most of their uh, 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 coverage. I mean, Biden's hiding out in a, a basement somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> he, should, he should be like AOC. He should be out in the streets totally. with a mask and stuff on, listening to, uh, 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 to people. Uh, you know, it's, it's an incredible example of yielding the battlefield to the enemy. And the enemy, of course, you know, calls up Freedom Works and uh, mm -hmm. asks Robert Mercer, the hedge fund billionaire, who's the key backer of Trump. They just call him up and say, uh, we need a second Tea Party. And hey, you know, yeah. let, 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 let the rednecks bring their guns and menace people. That ensures we're on TV all the time. So the protest movement in America is 
you know, strictly this top-down organized, uh, uh, you know, display yeah. of white, white arrogance and and uh, you know and and violence. As for the left, I don't know. I'm an old guy stuck here in San Diego in my <laughs> my, my garage. I haven't, uh, you know, I'm not part of the uh, any national uh, uh, left wing group. So I really don't know. But we have to stop now and bring the movement back, and we have to focus it. And I don't think there's a a, a better single issue than this whole question of. Sophie's choice and workers' safety, uh, and the demand. Think, I'm sorry. I think now. Oh no, I'm sorry. I think now that we know a little bit more about the disease, too, it's a perfect time to make that call because, as I talk to organizer friends in different, you know, constituency groups around the country, I do feel like there's been a hesitation to call for mass protests, even when the nurses were doing them, even when Amazon workers were doing them, because they didn't want to be accused of being anti-scientific or getting people sick or in trouble. But now I think that, you know, we're a little bit less nervous maybe about being outside and, and socially distanced. We can maybe make that call and, and there can actually be organizing of sort of mass occupations and sure. other sorts of things. But Tammy, the flip side is so many people have decided to demonize people who are outside. Right. right? That they've undercut, so, they've undercut, I think, the ability to turn around and actually call for demonstrations. So I think I think that's right. been really hard. I think so the, the compliment to that will have to be a rhetorical strategy where we say, I think, you know, as as all of you guys have said before, like we're we are the ones who should be protesting because our people are dying and because they've been forced into this false choice. I don't think we should have had any hesitation about this. The very first thing I wrote about the pandemic back in mid-March, early, uh, no, early March, was saying we cannot yield the street. The left mm -hmm. never yields the street to the right, ever. Um, the exception might be a case, for instance, in Manhattan where the density is such. But then again, Hong Kong's as dense as yeah. Uh, yeah. Manhattan. And the, and, the, and the activists there, you know, are carrying, carrying on the struggle. We should embrace, uh, you know, their example. But we've let them off the bastards off the hood. <laughs> Not enough to give news conferences or to debate on a, you know, in a, a totally empty uh, congressional floor uh, so that C-SPAN can get a, 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 a soundbite. People in this country are raging. They're angry. Their yeah. futures are being destroyed. And we need to be become the lightning rod for that. Uh, so we, we have a lot of questions for you about your writings about uh, movements and the left. But just to really quickly dwell on the, uh, dwell on the Sophie's Choice analogy, this is something we've been talking about, that this is a forced choice. And obviously it's a forced choice by the government that has failed to provide. PPE, masks, the ability to safely be outside um, or to work, to work safely. Why? But we've also been wondering, like, why the Biden campaign hasn't gone in that direction to criticize Trump for failing to provide any of this stuff, right? Universal health care, protection to workers. They've gone this bizarre direction, which is trying to out-demonize China. Um, and it's, do you have any thoughts on, like, is it, do you think it's because Biden is ideologically opposed to all these social welfare programs? So he's painted himself in a corner to only kind of fight the stages Cold War battle? Well, he seems 
he and his campaign staff seem to be just brain dead and paralyzed in this. They're like a deer in the headlights. And why that should be so, I have no idea. I mean, look, this bastard, I hope this could buy your censor. This bastard, you know, <laughs> refuses for months to use the, uh, uh, the Defense Production Act uh, mm-hmm. to take charge of, of manufacturing personal protective equipment and ventilators. In Taiwan, um, they immediately put the army in charge of this, and they increased mass production from a million a day to 10 million a day, uh, a little under three weeks. China ramped up from... 10 million to 100 million a day in four weeks. It should have been done in the beginning. Then he turns around and actually uses the Defense Production Act. For what reason? To compel meat packing workers to go back into their uh, deadly uh, plants, plants for up to 70% of the people in the, uh, you know, the plants is tested positive and people are dying. I mean, it, you know, the ammunition is lying there in front of them at their feet. They just won't use it. Why? But the point is, even if they do use it, and of course, Bernie and our revolution use it, but it needs to be backed up or paralleled, perhaps is a better way to say it, but by protest in support of of the working class. And also hoping that uh, unions and groups of workers will take leadership here because the political leadership, even on the uh, progressive side, uh, has failed to uh, understand the necessity, the urgency of protests. And I can't give you any explanation for that. You know, just just to ask a little bit on that, like something that you wrote that really stuck out to me was, in your article in the New Left Review, you talked about like nursing home workers, and especially in Kirkland, Washington, these people who are in high rent places, they make $10 an hour. A lot of them make less than minimum wage. It necessitates them having to go from nursing home to nursing home to nursing home. They can't take off time because they have families, as you said, and you know they have to. And what hap- ends up happening is they infect people who are the most vulnerable. Um, you know, people in chicken plants, these nursing home workers here, I, I'm in the Bay Area right now. Most of the people who work in, in skilled nursing facilities as AIDS, most people who live in, you know, assisted life facilities as AIDS are, they're black, they're Latino, mostly a lot, some of them are Chinese. Um, obviously in, in South Dakota, you see, you know, the majority of people in that poultry plant are Latino. Do you think some of the lack of, of organizing, the lack of outrage that is on the left like, do you think there's part of it that is because the workers that, that are being, that are most at risk here are, are minorities? Well, yes, but I, um, one of the first things I wrote, I interviewed uh, Jim Stroud, who's an old friend of mine, a union organizer, yeah. kind of very romantic guy, he used to, you know, jump freight trains to go from SEIU <laughs> organizing campaign to campaign, but he... He works with the, the nursing home workers in Seattle. And he said right at the beginning, he gave this explanation of the public health people come and they pay no attention to the workers. They don't interview them. They don't understand why they're moonlighting on these $10 an hour 
uh, uh, jobs. It immediately spread to 10 other uh, nursing homes. And it was obvious that this was a conflagration that would not stop. It would march across the country, would be everywhere. And now in the bill that uh, the House passed uh, yesterday, uh, there's a thing in it calling for emergency task force, uh, national task force to go to nursing homes. This is after something over probably 30 or could be even 50,000 people have died. And nursing homes are really a criminal uh, uh, racket. They are owned by hedge fund, uh, by private equity and other private investors and these big chains. They're always understaffed. People aren't given training and conditions are awful. And I know this because my father ended up in mm. uh, a rest home like that. And they rather pay fines than in, yeah. in reform anything. And what they've done, you know, for the past uh, uh, four months now, is they've refused in states that have ombuds people for nursing homes. They've refused to let them in the homes. Mm -hmm. They lie to the uh, uh, relatives, uh, or they don't respond uh, to them all. They pile bodies up and hide them in uh, uh, places. And until recently, have not been under any obligation to report coronavirus deaths uh, in the homes. I mean, we're talking about manslaughter on a national scale. And instead of giving these people immunity from lawsuits, uh, which is the Trump administration's uh, 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 position, we should be indicting the people who are responsible for these conditions. They should be charged with manslaughter straight out. But yes, I mean, it, it, you know, in California, I know that uh, uh, so many of the, uh, the nursing home workers, just like the nurses in the hospitals, are Filipinos. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think at some point you sit back and calculate and look at different groups. I think uh, Philippine uh, healthcare workers uh, are going to make up uh, probably the single largest group of people who suffered death and or um, mm. uh, serious disease as a result of this. Yeah, it's like 75%, I think, of nursing homes in California are understaffed. And then for that understaffed fine, it's generally around $10,000. They all have lawyers that try and get them out of a $10,000 fine. And in the end, they're just like, well, who cares? You know, it's a $10,000 fine. And uh, there's really no oversight. And as you said, like the, it's actually getting worse. And, you know, it's obviously all this just goes back to lobbying money and, you know, campaign contributions to the governors in those states. But like, it's, uh, you know, like there's, it's something that actually it seems more concentrated in Democrat states than, you know, in Republican states in a lot of ways, like it's, it's, it's that's, that's absolutely true. California, New Jersey, uh, New York. My father, uh, back about, uh, what was it, 35 years ago, his union um, uh, pension fund went mm -hmm. defunct because the industry he worked in the hotel meat industry um, was reorganized and closed down. This is a, the same period when uh, 
uh, arm and hammer and people were, were destroying organized packing house uh, uh, unions. So my mother had to go to work in a nursing home. And night after night, she'd call my father at two in the morning because somebody had fallen out of the bed. And she, or maybe she and another woman were the only caretakers. My father had to go over and they'd move some obese person who'd fallen on the floor wow. uh, back to the bed because the town I grew up in has an unusual concentration of, of, of nursing homes and long-term care facilities. I mean, it's just, it was a nightmare situation and it hasn't changed that much over time. Despite legislation, particularly federal legislation, these people get away with ignoring it. I've been just finished teaching a semester online at the big Catholic university or University of San Diego. And one of my students is an incredible guy who's the chief of campus police. He's from Albany, Georgia, oh, which is yeah. the first cancer cluster, I mean cancer, the first uh, COVID cluster in the deep south. And this community has uh, uh, been devastated by it. He's lost three of his cousins and many friends to it. And as he told the rest of the class, he said, look, you know, we're black families in the south. We help each other out. We help our neighbors. <clears throat> we don't exist in nuclear families and we don't commute to work by a, a, a computer. We're being wiped out. And nobody's paid any attention uh, uh, to it. I mean, his heart is just totally broken uh, by that. And I'm in a, you know, in a, a far, far less tragic way. But my kids are in the same dilemma. Uh, mm. I, I'm very immune uh, compromised. I have a very rare um, <clears throat> cancer. And I, I have four kids, but my two younger kids are still in high school. I'm a super geriatric father. <laughs> my high school kids are trying to figure out what to do because school's going to reopen in September. They're going to be back at school. Maybe even by the end of the summer, the temptation to hang out with their friends. Mm. And... Uh, Apart from my wife, we also have her aunt who lives here, who's about my age. Wow. And we just don't know what, how the hell uh, that's going to work. But we have, you know, we have middle class means. We're both uh, college professors. I mean, how does it work when you're a transit driver or a nurse's assistant? Mm. I mean, we, we should not just scream. We need to start breaking things, quite frankly. What should we start with? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, do I want to be under indictment? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on record. In the past, I've, in the past I've gotten in trouble by encouraging uh, uh, people to attack surveillance cameras and the like. Um, <laughs> Mike, your um, your comparisons to America to the rest of the world was really striking to us. We, all of us were talking about in your New Left Review piece, at the very end, you had this very striking conclusion about your diagnosis, your assessment of the U.S. left. Um, 
sorry to read this back to you, but you say that there's a disturbing element of national solipsism in the U.S. progressive movement that is symmetrical with the new nationalism. We need to talk not we tend to talk only about the American working class and American radical history, uh, and what sometimes veers close to a left version of American firstism. And I've I've heard you on other media talking about how, in fact, the USSR was a good thing in that it forced Americans to be honest with the rest of the world in order to win other win over other countries. Let's say how you I, I, we want to hear more about this. Basically, how, how did you? What 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 pu- what pushes you in this direction? Why do you have this perspective, um, which we a lot of us appreciate, but we don't see very often from kind of the prominent you know voices in this country? Well, during a long time ago, a couple of young German guys got together with some other <laughs> guys, with tailors and shoemakers and so on, and they wrote this pamphlet, <clears throat> and it said that the role of communists in the broad movement differs from the broad movement in only two ways. One is in struggles of the, excuse me, struggles of the present, they represent the future. And in struggles of the local or the national, they represent the global working class uh, as a whole. And I've always taken this as uh, kind of the first commandment laid down from uh, um, whatever Garrett (laughs) uh, they were writing, (laughs) writing this in. No, I mean, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations and also the United Nations um, own World Food Project have been warning since the end of last summer and certainly through the fall that 2020 might have the largest starvation uh, crisis since Second World War. Yeah. Uh, 235 million people will face acute uh, food shortages. And there's potential here for people to start dying at the, uh, the rate of 30,000 people or more um, a day. Now, that's been out there, like I said, since the beginning of the Democratic primary debates. It was, it was never brought up. Uh, nothing about world... Uh, poverty or inequality was uh, brought up. Um, why do you think that is, though? Excuse me? Why do you think that is? Why, why is this lacking, this global perspective lacking? Well, I think there's political calculation, e- even amongst people we deeply admire, like Bernie Sanders, to not get out there and get involved in yeah. international stuff. Because his strong suit was running on... Uh, you know, domestic New Deal, uh, a new economic, socioeconomic bill of, uh, bill of rights. But then again, you don't expect the candidates to do this. You expect the people who support the candidates, the organized groups and movements, to light the fire under their, their feet and to be tribunes of the working class and poor people uh, uh, everywhere at a time when so many hundreds of millions of people uh, as refugees, victims of war, uh, farmers, and others faced with, uh, with famine. I mean, it, we, we need to accurately conceptualize what, what's going on here. It isn't just a disease outbreak 
that's so serious in which we've been so unprepared that now we have a recession as well. Now, this is a snowballing uh, mm -hmm. event, and we're in a new uh, historical epic, uh, just as we are in a new geological uh, uh, epic. And we'll see more emergent diseases, we'll see more natural disasters. And as we're seeing now, we're seeing how global warming is a threat to human health, first and above all, because of its threat to food security. And everybody agrees and has agreed for years that need to increase the food output, uh, cereal output of, of the planet by 50% to accommodate the population coming in, in, uh, in 20 years. That's not happening. In Africa, where the need for increased agricultural productivity is the greatest, uh, population growth is 2.5% a year. And uh, the latest estimate is that the GDP of Af Sub-Saharan Africa as a whole will decline by at least 5%. That may not seem a big figure. It's a catastrophic uh, uh, figure, in fact. And I've tried to warn in the past that based on the 1918, 1919 um, experience, the Spanish flu, almost all the attention has been placed on what happened in North America and Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it seemed to select uh, healthy young, young adult soldiers in trenches and uh, young nurses and so on. But in fact, 60% of the mortality occurred in India amongst famished, uh, you know, famished people. I mean, you look at it and right now we have all the kind of structures of uh, callousness and uh, emotional distances to allow our governments to simply abandon a big part of the world. Now, ironically, it was different during the Cold War because there wasn't a single single little island anywhere <clears throat> that wasn't valuable property. Right. And both sides had to pretend that they uh, <clears throat> stood for the emancipation of humanity and modernism, you know, five-year plans or, you know, American agriculture laid out. But once the Cold War died, part of humanity just became politically dispensable to the superpowers. At the same time, the global capitalism their labor became unnecessary. And of course, the majority of the workforces in all the major cities of, of, of Africa and in most countries in, in South America exist in this sector called the informal um, uh, sector, which is basically a euphemism for structural unemployment and people earning subsistence mm -hmm. by various kinds of... Uh, of, of activities. So, you know, on the horizon, if we're willing to look and be realistic about it, genocide is on, on, on the horizon, you know, and we're heading in that direction. That's why I was, um, that's why I was so fervent on this question of, of internationalism mm -hmm. and of unifying with anybody who understands the problem. Um, in those terms. And as far as I can see amongst world leaders, um, the only two people I can think of are the Dalai Lama and this uh, Argentine soccer fan guy who lives in a big house in Rome. 
Um, <laughs> Do you, on that note, speaking of the, the Cold War, how are you thinking about our alignment with China right now? Obviously, oh. it's become a sort of subject of demonization in the campaign and through this pandemic. I mean, the yellow peril is back big time. And the problem is that it suits both Trump and Xi to appeal to extreme nationalism uh, at the moment. I mean, Xi faces incredible contradictions at home. I mean, look at the decline in exports. China has been attempting for 20 years to wean itself away from uh, relying on exports or relying on giant infrastructural investments. Hasn't been able to do it. It has the mother of all debt bubbles. And unlike 2008, where Chinese stimulus led the world economy out of the bottom of, of the recession, that's virtually impossible uh, today. And I've written very often pointing to the fact that the world described in Karl Marx's capital is most true in China. I mean, this most enormous working class in, in, in world uh, history. Yep. People are, you know, people are militant, you know, given, uh, given the chance. But at the same time, the survival in the contemporary world depends on cooperation between China and the United States to meet emergencies in other parts of the uh, of the global south and above all in science i mean these stories about uh, the chinese covering everything up well the leadership in uh Dubai and wuhan covered you know their tracks but the scientific leadership uh is you know it's been absolutely stellar in in many ways particularly in communicating it all this stuff that trump is saying uh, is really nonsense, and so much of it goes unchallenged in the press. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why we can't be in total solidarity with democracy protesters and, you know, uh, workers and the poor in China, but at the same time realize how utterly dangerous, stupid, and inherently racist uh, all this is, and the Democrats are buying into it. Biden buys into it. Biden's going to be telling you how he's tougher in China than, um, you know, than Trump. I mean, people, well, let me give you another issue that wasn't mentioned in the Democratic primary debates. Nuclear disarmament. Mm -hmm. We're in an incredibly dangerous world. And the idea that there will be no significant nuclear war between big countries. Uh, well, look at the clock, the famous clock of the uh, atomic scientists. Uh, I mean, it's right up there. It's almost ready to toll yeah. midnight in terms of the likelihood of, of, of nuclear war. And China, like Russia, has very legitimate uh, grievances that have been used by autocrats to win popular support because they are real grievances. The extension of, of NATO east of the Elba. This isn't what Gorbachev agreed to with, with Reagan and, and uh, uh, Reykjavik. 
the exclusion of China, uh, the world's second and soon single largest economy from all the important uh, uh, inter international economic bodies from their uh, leadership or councils uh, it's been a slap in the uh, uh, in the face and these of course are gifts to Putin they're gifts to uh, you know to Xi and uh, uh, his wing of the uh, of the party so this is a very dangerous uh world and we need to be absolutely out there against this uh all this yellow peril stuff and all this uh incitation to military um conflict right now you know listening to you talk about how um corona will wind up being a sort of de facto genocide in the south really reminds me, I had read your late Victorian Holocaust years ago, and also your broader point that China today looks a lot like Karl Marx's 19th century. This seems like it's a theme in your work, that the world that we live in today seems to be a return to the 19th century, and that the 20th century Cold War in the middle was the real kind of aberration. But capitalism, if, if we were to map capitalism as a whole, the mid-19th century and the 21st century they kind of constitute the majority of its history, right? In this 20th century golden age of wealth, like Rooseveltian state welfare capitalism is the exception. I mean, is that a fair characterization of, of your arguments or your, your work? Yeah, I mean, uh, Marx himself did not believe that parliamentary democracy was the default state condition of uh, European and North American uh, capitalism. And the juncture between the two uh, has only been temporary and there have been some remarkable historians, people like Neil Davidson and some right, right, right. writing about this uh, uh, yeah. recently. And we're seeing it even, you know, even more clearly uh, today. But capitalism in its periods of the greatest uh, energy, productive energy, periods of the greatest uh, transformation of the technical uh, conditions of production, the forces of production, has always been driven by labor uprisings, by strong labor movement, okay? It's always, you know, why not have the workers work 16 hours a day? Right, right. And don't worry, just sit back and uh, watch the money flow, but the workers go on strike and they win as British working class did in the 1850s, the 10 hour day. Suddenly you're thinking, oh my God, it's time to invest in new machines. I hear there's an inventor named Arkwright somewhere. Let's, right. uh, 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 let's, let's buy him. What I'm saying is that inherent in capitalism itself, the imperative to improve uh, and advance the forces of production only partially lies in competition between groups of capitalists. They also find it convenient just to make deals with each other. But the really driving force behind the increase in productivity and the application of science to the economy uh, has been the power of the labor movement itself. You take it out of the question. And of course, something Keynes looked at uh, as well, the natural tendency in the system for capitalists just to become rentiers. Right. Like big pharma uh, is today, 
they do very little research and development anymore. It comes from small companies and they'll buy them up for their product or the product competes with theirs. They'll buy them up and then close them down. Uh, they just have their patents and they collect rents uh, from their their patents and put all their money into advertising and into, uh, um, you know, political corruption. And this rentier structure uh, is now, I mean, we have to look at it and it's uh, true in virtually uh, everywhere, including in some, uh, you know, some of the high-tech industries. But we've never really recovered from 2008. And 2008 led to something very strange yeah. in that it disconnected power, for instance, in Washington from the very largest banks and corporations. Yes, the, you know, the lobby and, of course, you know, they've done well at it. But look who's in power now. I call them the small billionaires. Who, my friend Sam Parbert calls them the lumpen. Uh, <laughs> capitalist and i wrote something recently um about cleveland uh tennessee um what is cleveland tennessee it is kind of the trumpian utopia it's a small industrial town northwest of uh, chattanooga and it has a lot of non-union uh small factories and the two richest men in town who are they well, one guy owns the second biggest nursing home chain in the country, including the one in Kirkland, <coughs> Washington. Uh, he's, he's in hiding these days. He owns 200 nursing homes. And the wow. other second richest guy in town, uh, now actually I think he may be the, even uh, wealthier, he owns the second largest payday uh, uh, credit chain, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, he'll cash your check and uh, then lend you some money on top of it. But comes the next week, you can't meet it, then you'll owe more. And in a month or so, you know, you, you become slaves to this guy. And it struck me that this is an absolute microcosm of who holds political power right now. These regional, small time, super exploitative capitalists like the DeVoses. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Michigan and and so on and I'm not very impressed by efforts to quite understand this phenomenon they're comparable phenomena in other countries uh, a, well. so when I hear you talk about that like I so I'm the historian of the group I am also I read capital and I try to think is this the world that we live in today, and there are similarities, but you read Capital, you read about the 19th century, it's all about innovation, about large factories, people working together on the shop floor. But in your, your own work, you've described how we, we have a job crisis in the world today, that there are fewer jobs than ever before, which has produced this thing we, you know, we all know as contingent labor, the precarious labor. And it seems like rather than innovation, capitalists just invest in rent, right, rentierism as you've just been describing. So it's not actually, I'm not, I, I guess, I guess I don't, I can't really tell how do we square this 21st century world with the 19th century world that Marx came up with. And I know that's something you wrote about um, in the book you published last year. Uh, well, it's, it's a world driven by the imperative of 
using up and exploiting all the good things of the earth in your lifetime and not leaving anything uh, behind. It's a scorched earth right. uh, mentality. And I'd argue that capitalism in its current form is incompatible with human survival or threat to human survival in four ways. First, it cannot guarantee food security or carry out uh, the revolution needed uh, to feed the world by uh, mid-century. Uh, agricultural futures markets and multinational companies that uh, become threats to food security. Secondly, it can't decarbonize uh, the world economy, or what to me is equally important is mitigation. It cannot and won't supply any of the funds to allow poor countries, which are directly in the headlights of, of climate change, but played very little role in um, uh, creating it to allow them to adapt uh, to the threats of climate change in terms of sea level, their agricultural systems, uh, irrigation. Third, capitalism doesn't create jobs anymore, right. uh, apart from uh, East Asia. And it doesn't provide people with any means of income or give them necessary and important social roles uh, in society. I'm not one of these right-to-be-lazy people who believes <laughs> EBI. We, 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 we should just, you know, draw on Andrew Yang's <laughs> and uh, uh, do our stuff. I mean, work is one of the fundamental ways we're socialized. Uh, mm -hmm. It's an absolute necessity to people. And right now, we live in a world where it's uh, technologically possible, mm -hmm. reduce the working day, and begin to move toward what uh, Marx envisioned as a poly-skilled work life. Right. We can bring, going back to school, you know, going in and, I don't know what, shoveling manure or you know, inventing new medicines, whatever a day job is. Uh, it's fishing in the day and poetry at night. Yeah. <laughs> right. But finally, the fourth thing is, there, of course, is an extraordinary revolution in genomics and biological design uh, going on. <clears throat> and the application of artificial intelligence and big numbers and all that, uh, uh, the ability to design uh, proteins trying to be atomic uh, uh, level. I mean, this is an extraordinary revolution. It's probably comparable in its own way to uh, either several original industrial revolutions. Capitalism cannot translate that into public health mm -hmm. um, for the people of the world. It's, it's, and then if I were to add all four of these things together in a kind of uh, old school Marxist way, I'd say that uh, the current form of capitalism has become an absolute fetter on the development of the productive forces needed to ensure human survival and dignity in the, uh, 
in the 21st century. And then does that mean you're pessimistic that there are these conditions for the working class uh, to organize today, unlike the 19th, unlike the early 20th century? Well, like we talked about earlier, there's one part of the world in the industrial <laughs> working class uh, is tremendous potential to kick some ass in the next decades mm. uh, in East Asia. But I wrote this little book, Planet of Slums, and I meant to follow it through uh, with another book, just looking at examples of organization and resistance by people outside the factory floor, whether those are uh, former industrial workers in, in uh, Argentina, uh, slum dwellers in uh, you know, Nairobi, look across the world. And of course, the first thing you discover is that people are incredibly ingenious at finding new sources of power, uh, like simply blocking the roads into a city. Uh, uh, you know, it's been very successful. The real problem is not so much their detachment uh, from the socialized workplace, because they have other forms of sociality, it is that an informal economy has basically so few activities by which people survive. It's not a rainforest ecosystem, yeah. more like a desert uh, ecosystem. So people are competing in an intense way yeah. over scarce jobs, scarce opportunities for uh, shelter and so on. And so what happens is that uh, racial, linguistic, or ethno-religious organizations insert themselves mm -hmm. to control and ration those scarce resources. The only place in the world which hasn't seen that in a rather amazing extent is in the Western Hemisphere in Latin America and in the Caribbean. Of course, there are racial, ethnic uh, conflicts, but nothing comparable to what's going on in the Middle East, Asia, uh, and Africa. Well, like something that you mentioned, and I think it's something that a lot of intelligent people have been saying is that, you know, they see this almost as a dress rehearsal for never-ending climate crises. How do you see that, you know, knowing what we know now after four months of this response, you know, like, how do you see that going for the next 20, 30 years? I mean, like, has, has there been any glimmer of, of hope, you know, being like, well, you know, we got that right. You know, is there, is there anything like that? Well, uh, unfortunately, I've never been in the business of giving hope. Um, <laughs> It's, it's partially because of where uh, I grew up with. Um, and I grew up in a blue-collar, Western, white working class uh, community with some wonderful people. But uh, <laughs> uh, politics has moved further and further to, to the right. I still get together with guys I went to second grade with. I've known them. Wow. All, all my lives, and we kind of avoid questions. The, the one stumbling block for me, if somebody's open racist, I can't be friends with them. But if they like Trump or something, hey, I've known you since 1952. 
not going to end the friendship. So when I, where I came from, I never had any illusion that an American revolution is, was possible. I imagined that somehow black and brown Asian uh, liberation movements together with the third world and a new labor upsurge, maybe, you know, out of this uh, complicated calculus, require the, create the kind of historical agency to do it. But also, and, and maybe it's because of my Celtic uh, uh, temperament, particularly in the Irish side, I'm Irish and Welsh, uh, but on my mother's side, uh, you don't need to be hopeful to fight. All you, all you have to do is really hate the bastards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we have to be the defenders of the necessary. Never trim our sails to the realistic. We define what is absolutely necessary in the survival of all people, their dignity, their education. I mean, the coming population of the earth, the next <clears throat> billion and a half people, some people see this as, oh my God, can't feed them, their, you know, mouth is right, they'll have to just starve to death. A billion and a half people, the minds, the social collaboration, the productive forces, I mean, it's incredible. Um, I, I was interested because you mentioned Third World Liberation Front. It's something that you know, I, I also writing a book right now, and part of it focuses on that. And you know, it's, it's something that I know that you also have interest in. It's just I know that there's students right now who are trying to organize around that idea again. You know, and it's very small. It's generally at elite universities, but you know, like outside of San Francisco State, it was generally at elite universities in the you know 1969, 1971 as well. Like, do you do you see a potential in the student movement around those ideas, around sort of pushing things towards international concerns, around this idea of solidarity through third world movements, or do you think that like like my my sense, which I'll just you know ask you, is that you know given that now we're what like you know, me, Tammy, and Andy are all from basically 1965 heart cellar babies, right? Like we're, we're more assimilated, we're, you know, much more comfortable, but also feel a little bit conditional in that sort of way. Like, do you, do you see something like that coming out of any of this? Like, can you see a big student movement? Like, or, or do you think that the conditions of, 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 of you know, Latino um, students, of black students, of, of Asian students, of Muslim students has changed in some way where it's not possible anymore? Well, I take my leadership here from a guy named Michael Zenzen, died about 10 years ago, uh, someone I greatly admired and worked with for years. And he's a former Black Panther who got his eye knocked out by the Pasadena police and then used the settlement to set up a uh, 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 public access television program to attack the police. And he <laughs> <laughs> and his little group, and, and his group consists, there weren't, there, there are a couple of us, a uh, uh, couple of us white and black college people who were uh, uh, active with the group, but basically it was just kids in the community. And he, he and his wife um, basically operated a, a, created a little miniature arc uh, to ensure the kids kids had food, a place to sleep, tried to, tried to get them jobs, and they devoted themselves full time to solidarity with South Africa. 
And now, you know, over the past 20 years and stuff, I see all these people, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was out there, hey, no, you weren't. <laughs> there, were, there was at least a 15 year period where there was nothing going on. And Michael and his kids, they, they, they were there. Davis Cup was held in Newport Beach. He jumped in the middle of the tennis court uh, with the banner. Got, got beaten up, but laughing while he was being beaten, uh, it, it beaten up. And it's people like that that we need. People, we need to organize internationalism. It isn't necessarily um, uh, grow out of the struggles, the immediate struggles uh, that we're involved in. And frankly, frankly, we have to limit, uh, understand uh, multiculturalism <clears throat> as a Janus-faced uh, uh, process. On one hand, it's a means of integration and pacification. But on the other hand, it's a question of, of fighting alliances. I know an awful lot of people, uh, old people like me who were active in the 60s, and they will complain endlessly about identity politics and political correctness. And I've seen that. I've seen middle-class people kind of uh, pimping off of affirmative action and stuff. To me, that you know, that's really trivial. What we're talking about is the equal rights struggle. Mm. They need to continue it. The fact that it's always, uh, you know, under threat, and the importance of people uh, doing what John Steinbeck, in a famous passage in *Grapes of Wrath*, talked about: these Oaking men pull over in, with their families on the side of a road three or four Model T's worth of, uh, of, of people. And they get out and they're squatting on the side of the road. And one of them's drawing a circle with a stick. And they start talking, well, I lost my farm. Now I got driven out even a year before you did. And Steinbeck in this brilliant passage talks about the transformation of my and I mm. into we and are. And... I see this because I have four children. Two of them are Irish. Uh, my oldest, uh, Roshan, is in Belfast uh, right now. Uh, oh, born in Bel Belfast, comes from West Belfast. Uh, so she and her brother are not Americans by any stretch of the imagination, though they've lived here. But my two younger kids, in their junior year in San Diego High School, they run with this incredible crowd, both of them. Their, their crowds are different. My daughter's more into performance and music and stuff. My son are uh, the stem, the, the brown stem cell guys, they call themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, I, I, think, I think altogether they have one white friend. But they're just a wild bunch. All the Mexican kids, except for mine, are... Uh, sons and daughters of recent immigrants, poor black kids, uh, a Somali uh, uh, girl, and my daughter particularly is, uh, oh, she's ferocious. She's constantly getting suspended and in trouble with the cops on campus because she sees blatant racism constantly on the San Diego high school campus. She goes to an inner city 
high school that's internally divided in these different pro, uh, uh, programs. But she sees kids, their consciousness of themselves, their unity, also their, their sexual politics and gender politics are just extraordinary to me. I mean, I'm so old, I, I don't have, I've lost track. I have no idea <laughs> there there are, but boy, I got to watch myself with pronouns. This is a fantastic generation of kids. And, you know, the millennials are getting hit with sledgehammers right now. The Generation Y or whatever they're called. <laughs> they're going out into the coldest night in a way, in American history for a generation, with the least prospects, uh, you know, the most apocalyptic scenarios to look forward to. And the imperative is to help them organize themselves is, is activists. I mean, people can say they're socialists and go on about the proletariat, this or that. <laughs> but unless you're willing to, um, help create organizations that young workers can join and, and you know, and can help lead. Um, because, look, let's be honest, and, and I'm not talking about you guys, so forgive me, but <laughs> <laughs> lots, lots of people get very radical when they're uh, in college for a while, and then they move on, and they probably stay liberal or you know, even radical, but they move on into careers and start worrying about uh, how am I going to get my kid into Harvard? I know she's only four years old, but we really start <laughs> thinking about it. Well, I don't want to send my kid to public school. We need to go to that, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, charter school or magnet school or something like that. We need an organization of young fighters um, uh, similar to what uh, the Black Panthers and uh, other groups were in the 60s for all the mistakes, similar to what the gun communist league was in 1928. Uh, uh, you'll pardon me here, but I, I, I remain an unreconstructed Leninist in most senses uh, <laughs> about the need for organization of organizers and organizations that in their leadership represent the the class that they uh, fight for. It sounds like what you're talking about is uh, the feeling we all had after the Nevada primary, where it did really feel like what the Sanders campaign was talking about, this multiracial working class movement was going to happen. And it seems so long ago, it's like we haven't had time to process it. Things just changed so radically. Um, do you, do you, did you find that moment as like, is that what you're kind of optimistic about? Like that is things like that are possible? But it does seem like you know not everyone lives in California and is the, the the child of Mike Davis. You know, like how how do we how do we is this going to be a generational thing or is it just kind of confined to isolated pockets of this country? And like you said, people grow up and they move on. No, not at all. And it's not even really generational. The Sanders campaign, of course, was able to do something that none of the other Democrats could do. It could run and in. in get votes from middle-aged white, white working class uh, people, people who most of us would, you know, write off as uh, totally lost. I mean, my problem right now, and it's not only with my kids, 
but my students, I've been teaching at this elite Catholic university. I thought all my students would be, you know, country club types. Then not at all. Some of them wept in class because I had a class that looked at the prime, based on analyzing the primaries. Some of them wept in class uh, when, when Bernie uh, succeeded. But my problem is I can't get them to vote for uh, Biden. I mean, my son, my younger son, who is, you know, always coming in with, you know, he's discovered some new Trotsky's sect on the moon or something, uh, closed the door in my face when I said, well, you, you know, to swallow, I mean, we have to fight the, the Democratic establishment, but we have to vote for Biden. He said, no, no way I would do that. And my students, college students, have aged to vote. Most of them wouldn't, wouldn't do that. I, I, I felt like I was, you know, some, you know, some weak-kneed old guy trying to get <laughs> the, the Red Front fighters to vote for a social democrat in 1933. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to ask you, Mike, I think over the past decade or so, I've noticed a lot of friends who have been involved in a lot of worker organizing turn much more attention to housing and to think about housing and the unemployed and the unhoused as a site for the kind of organizing that we've historically thought about more as lying with workers and, you know, sort of workers, whatever that means. Um, I'm curious what you think about that, you know, given this kind of wave of rent strikes and um, obviously the crisis of, of housing and homelessness we've seen over the past decade or 15 years. Well, is the system uh, regresses, as you guys pointed out, back to the 19th century. Um, we also regress to some of the finest moments in American uh, working class history, like rent strikes, uh, like the fact that people fought evictions tooth and nail. The neighbors all came out and threw stones at the uh, the marshals and in, in uh, the sheriffs. I mean, people, you know, should not underestimate people's anger or what a positive thing that can be. Housing, I. People ask me a lot about gentrification, and my position is, look, you can't do anything about gentrification until you look at the private market in land, okay? And Henry George uh, from San Francisco, the newspaper man who became the uh, most popular radical social thinker in the English-speaking world in the late 19th century, not Karl Marx, was totally right. Uh, about the rentier class and private ownership of of land. Fix your neighborhood up, your inner city neighborhood. Well, it'll soon be on the sales block. A young art artist, group of starving artists move into a warehouse, becomes an exciting neighborhood. You're gone. I mean, in terms of immediate struggles, rent, rent strikes <clears throat> are so important because they depend on neighborhood organization and neighbors and support from people's uh, 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 unions. In that sense, uh, they're not any different from a strike in a factory. Uh, uh, but in terms of what we tell people, the solutions are, we need to be, we need to be frank uh, about it. Uh, we need public housing, just like we need public employment. That's the only place that good jobs are gonna come from. Mm -hmm. And saying these things right now, just like Bernie's uh, uh, 
warmed up version of uh, uh, Roosevelt's 1944 uh, platform. Mm. No longer reformist. It has a it has a partially revolutionary dynamic uh, to it. It's far more like what uh, Trotsky called. Uh, forgive me, saying Trotsky. But I don't like Trotsky. <laughs> I like Trotsky. Uh, saying that um, a transitional demand is one that is necessary and urgent for people. It doesn't directly call for socialism. Mm. But in fact, it's a reform that's impossible in the present balance of, of, of forces. So yeah. in fighting for it, you're driven beyond the usual limits of, of reform uh, struggles. I mean, and that was the exciting thing about Bernie's uh, mm -hmm. campaign. I mean, sure. in, 19, in 1948, when Truman was running, uh, much of the same demands were in the Truman program, and they seemed perfectly accomplishable mm. at the time. They seemed just reform demands in the 1960s, national health care, you know, yeah. big issue. But in the world we live in, these correspond to people's deepest needs to the crisis in their lives, but at the same time, they reach beyond uh, the limits. And now we're in a, a period where on one hand, we have to fight for those kinds of demands, you know, sensible, logical reforms. But the solution can only be um, through things that are, you know, that really raise the question of, of, of private property and public ownership. Uh, so I'm very excited when Elizabeth Warren proposed the public production of prescription medicines. Yeah. And I know a lot of people on the left don't think she's a radical, just a spoiler or something. But she's often been actually to the left of, of Bernie. She proposed a wealth tax, yeah, not an income tax. Wealth tax is far more radical. Right. It's like public production of medicines is far more radical than a plan to um, force drug companies to reduce the price of medicine. And we see right now uh, people are dying because we've left those drugs up to big pharma, which has failed uh, to uh, produce them. One of the most interesting documents in the run-up to the pandemic was in September of last year, when Trump's uh, economic advisory, his Council of Economic Advisors, issued a report on pandemics. And they pointed out an impeccable logic uh, to which a Marxist economist and a neoclassical right, economist right. both agree, why it was impossible for the big drug companies to make the vaccines and lifeline antivirals and uh, antibiotics, uh, you know, that were necessary. So we have to, in a sense, occupy two, two terrains simultaneously. Uh, but understanding that this is radical, I mean... In other countries, it may be that the result of the pandemic is to blow wind in the sails of the neo-Nazi right, of the far right. Mm -hmm. But in the United States, potential uh, on the left is, um, it's, it's gigantic. I mean, it really is. As long as, uh, you know, we don't march to uh, the tune of Joe Biden and Nancy <laughs> with, uh, uh, Pelosi. Uh, okay, so I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> yeah.
thank you so much. I mean, um, thank you. you know, we are all big admirers of the work, and you know, when I when I read uh, Case for Letting Malibu Burn when I was in college, it blew my mind. I've been a huge fan of yours and molded a lot of my own writing around your work. So this is like a huge. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm over the moon to get to talk to you. I think Andy and Tammy feel the same way. Thank He's going to ask you about your uh, gem collection, though, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, I collect igneous, unusual igneous geological formations. I may be the only person in the world, apart from <laughs> actual scientists, who does this. I've been an amateur ge uh, geologist since I was about eight or, eight or nine years old. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <So> cool. <laughs> my, garage, my garage is nothing but non-minerals or crystals. I could care less about minerals in specific or crystals. I'm interested in things like abducted pieces of ocean crust or parts of the deep of, of, of the upper mantle that ended up on the surface. Uh, <laughs> like that. In California, it's the, probably the greatest place in the world for exotic and weird uh, geology. So anybody's listening out there <laughs> and lacking a hobby, let me you know, combine revolutionary politics and igneous petrology, and you'll be happy for the rest of your life. <laughs> Thank you so much. Everybody. Thank I you. Hope to see you guys again. Bye. Right. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks.